Kyle, thanks so much for joining Speaking of Founders Mission. I'm Stephanie Fields, and today I am excited to welcome Kim Levings, founder and CEO of Rethink You, a personal development company, and she considers herself to be a thinking coach. So Kim, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Me too. First, tell us what is a thinking coach? What does that mean? It sounds brilliant. <laughs> I say a thinking coach because I know there are a lot of coaches around these days and I'm very unique in that the coaching that I do is to help people figure out what they are thinking at a subconscious level that's impacting their performance and their behavior. So when you're able to rewrite those internal scripts, it can actually fix a lot of things in your life. Because if you think about it, excuse the pun, thinking is at the heart of everything. Everything you do starts with a thought. How do you even realize, I, you know, by the time you get to be an adult, I feel like you have these thought patterns that are already ingrained in your head. How do you ever recognize them and then reformat them? Oh yeah, that's quite a long story. I did want to say also at the outset that I'm South African. So people are scratching their heads trying to figure out my accent. Um, originally from Johannesburg, I like to always say that. Um, but as far as the thinking is concerned, it starts with being aware, besides the fact that I partner with ThinkX and use their technology, I think that I say to folks, all it does is actually taking stock of what you're doing. Just stop and become aware. When you think of something, say, why did I just think that? Or why did I say that? Or where did that pattern come from? Because we have so many ingrained patterns, as you quite rightly said, and our brain is basically a a huge data processing machine, especially the cerebellum. That's all it does is store pattern generator. It's a pattern generator. So I jokingly say to folks, when you got up this morning, did you stop to think about how to brush your teeth? Did you stop to think about getting dressed or doing your makeup or making coffee? There's so many things we just do on autopilot, right? Those are examples of ingrained patterns in the brain. The brain is basically stored an automatic pattern. And much of our behavior and interaction with people is just the same. It's a pattern that's been stored often at a young age, and we don't even realize it's there until we suddenly call it into question. How do those patterns get formed? When do they start? Like when, it, when's the point where it's like, okay, that's who you are and you're set if you don't recognize <laughs> them and actively work to change? Yeah, if you don't recognize them actively in the moment, it can happen in response to life events. You know, many of them happen when we're young, when your brain is still forming and is, um, you know, synaptic shedding goes on all the way until you're in your mid twenties. So your brain is basically cleaning out things that it doesn't need and it stores things that it does need. But some of these pattern generators are stored at a young age in response to a life event. And the brain has to make sense of it. So you have all of this stuff coming in, all of the sensory input, and the brain's got to do something with it. So I mean, many times it's like, okay, this is not important. I'm going to ignore it. Other times it's like, oh, this is scary. I need to protect you. It looks like we're in trouble. Let me create a protection response or let me create a reaction, whatever it may be, it stores something and that's how you respond. If you respond that way several times to similar situations, the brain stores it in its database. It's like, okay, so if A happens, I'll have response B. And so you'll respond to whatever it may be. Maybe it's somebody who gets angry. Maybe it's how you react when somebody criticizes you. 
It could be how you react when other people are having an argument or when you feel that life has just dealt you a bad blow and you have a reaction to it. Most times these are reactionary behaviors and I'm not saying they're all negative. Many are positive too. So it's sifting through that and saying, how am I thinking about things and how is that getting in the way of what I'm trying to achieve right now? What are some of the most common things that people do or have stored in their head that get in the way of whatever they're trying to accomplish? Huh. Well, there, there are many, but you know, I think we're all pretty familiar with the fear of failure, you know, and it translates, especially amongst women executives into the imposter syndrome. And at the root of the imposter syndrome is that belief that I'm not enough, you know, I'm not rich enough, smart enough, tall enough, whatever it may be. I am not enough. Those are examples of incorrect patterns. We don't, I don't spend time unpacking why they got formed. The reality is it's like, here's what you're thinking. And you hear it, it's always manifested at a conscious level because the conscious brain simply does what the subconscious tells it to. And so some of these triggers are going on and people have self-deprecating language. You know, when you compliment them and say, gee, that's, that's a really nice jacket. And they say, oh, this old thing. Oh yeah, I got this at a yard sale years ago. And they immediately kind of diminish the compliment because at the root of it is, I'm not worthy of that compliment. I'm not that great. I'm not beautiful. I'm not smart. Maybe they were criticized a lot as children. But another one also is uh, people who get uncomfortable sharing feelings. You know, they think that sharing feelings is is inappropriate and they, they sort of have this black and white approach to feelings or I need to be in charge of everything. I need to outperform everyone in order to be accepted. All these are examples of common threads of just goofy thinking. And once we expose it to the light, people are like, yeah, that makes no sense. Because then their conscious brain can take over and say, wait a minute, that's not right. Let's reshape it. So how does eliminating, in those two specific examples, eliminating imposter syndrome and then eliminating the fear of sharing feelings, how does that help you move forward with whatever goal you're trying to reach? Well, it depends. As I said, it's all tied to what it is that you're trying to achieve. Everybody's belief systems are different. But if you have that fear of failure and you're trying to achieve a goal, the fear of failure is holding you back because it's like, well, I can't really do that. Or I'm not really worthy of that. And I don't really believe that, you know, belief plus action, you know, plus the correct thinking will get you to the goal every time. And once you achieve success, you actually are reshaping the pattern in the brain saying, I can do this instead of I can't, I can do this. And I believe it. I've proven it. I have done it. And the brain's like, oh, okay, this is a new pattern. I like this. It makes me feel good. And then it, it gets you to the goal. You know, not sharing feelings too. It's just something you learn and you develop. And, and once you're able to grasp it and believe it through the process that I take people through, it can then impact any situation where perhaps the inability to be, you know, emotionally expressive and to be articulate about what you're thinking or feeling those are communication competencies that are impacted. Going back to the imposter syndrome, I think that's particularly interesting as a woman because I think that pretty much everybody that I've known, other women, feel that on some level. You know, whether it comes out in one way or another, talking to people, you can hear it. And like you said, even diminishing 
a coat being nice and saying, oh, I got this at a yard sale forever ago. I don't know that I would even recognize that as imposter syndrome or anything like that. You know, that it's saying that you're not good enough because I guess you're so used to hearing it that it's just like white noise. The imposter syndrome tends to be there because people, and I, I say women, but you know, sometimes it's men in situations too. It's not gender biased, but women experience it more just because for the longest time, women were not recognized in, in senior positions or professions. Um, I know I said, I'm old enough to have been turned down for positions that I wanted because I was a woman. And people raise their eyebrows and say, oh, that's not possible. Yeah, it was very possible back in the 80s. And so it's not that um, recent that women have been stepping up into more senior positions. So I think some of this is generational garbage that gets carried forward. And the, at the imposter syndrome is I'm not good enough. I don't really deserve to be here. I'm not that smart. And I once coached a woman who had imposter syndrome. She had two master's degrees. She was a bio in bio um, energetic engineer working on the human genome at MIT and didn't believe she was smart enough to be there. And that's why she kept getting more degrees because she never believed she was ever going to be qualified enough. That was the classic example of imposter syndrome. I don't belong here. Somebody's going to figure out that I'm not that smart. That is fascinating because you really just, especially somebody like that in that example, I mean, you're at MIT, I think by definition, that is success. You've made it into MIT. <laughs> right. <laughs> but she doesn't believe it at a deep level. So to your point, we don't recognize the narratives in ourselves until somebody holds up the mirror and reflects back to us. If, you know, if women do suffer from imposter syndrome more frequently, and it's because they're worried that they're not good enough. Hiding their feelings, I suppose, could have a perceived benefit because it's, you know, they're not going to be perceived as, well, you're more emotional or you're yes. more, um, erratic, you know, anything like yes. that. If they hide their feelings, then it's like, okay, I'm, I'm further conforming into whatever that should be. And maybe that will help me feel more deserving. Absolutely. And here's the reality is something that you just said triggered me that, as I said, I don't want to make this about gender bias, but I think that there is some truth to the fact that we still have a lot of bias going on, just as we have other biases going on. It's not just gender, but um, I remind people that we still hear statements like, wow, she did really well. And the unspoken word is for a woman. We never said, gee, he did so well for a man. If you said that, people will look at you like, but also the behavioral issues that are accepted are different. So, you know, men are confident and assertive and outspoken and women, women are pushy and arrogant. The fact is that we have incorrect tapes in our head. If I may use the term, if people even still remember tapes in our head, that's what goes on in our subconscious brain. It's just a huge data processing unit. And all we got to do is go through and look for the virus code. How did you start doing the work that you do? Why is this something that you decided to pursue as your passion? Um, that was interesting. You know, my origin story, um, Stephanie, and I won't go into the whole story, but I like to say that um, I hate to fail at things, but I failed at suicide. I tried twice, didn't succeed at that. And after my second suicide attempt, I recognized that 
I was just in a place of hopelessness and I needed help. But I also realized at that time, I had sort of stumbled into, not that, you know, being a Christian believer that anything you just stumble into, God rescued me from that. And he had already begun preparing me by putting me in human resources, training and development. And, and I discovered a love of teaching people. And I used to say, I love seeing the light bulbs go on in people's head. And interesting now, 30 years later, I'm still like seeing the light bulbs go on. But in this case, discovering people's passions. So I was in the training and development industry. When I recovered from my suicide attempt, I started, I realized I'm a trainer at heart. I've been training and facilitating and I was doing leader development and human resources management. I loved people, loved working with people. I started developing programs, mimicking what I was doing to get my own life together. And my first program, I started writing the outlines of it before we emigrated back in the 90s when I was still married. And when I eventually launched it, I went back to South Africa to do a national speaking tour and the program was called The Third Alternative. And at that point, it was because it was mainly for women and there was this big fight about whether you should be a career woman or a stay-at-home mom. And I said, the third alternative is to do what you're designed to do and live your purpose and your mission and don't judge others for theirs. Um, and that was the beginning, <clears throat> excuse me, of what is now the Rethink You program. So I designed a process to help regroup refocus or reframe and then refocus so that was the journey I walked myself through because you know we, we emigrated and didn't have green cards my father-in-law passed away from cancer a week before we arrived in the country and I went from being a senior executive at a very large company to having no green card and volunteering at the local church and working in my mother and stepmother-in-law's ballet school taking payments from the students and emptying the trash and refilling the coffee machine just to do something. It taught me a lot, but I also used that time to write and develop and ultimately form my own consulting company. Started consulting. I had this annoying habit for 20 years. Clients kept hiring me. I'd coach, work with a leadership team, and then they'd hire me to go work for them for a while. And that's what I did. And um, that took me all the way up until last year when, when the jobs kind of went away with when COVID hit. And I thought, you know, it's time. I have dabbled in this. I have worked with leadership teams. I've been coaching individuals for 20 something years, but I want to do it for myself in a big way. So I really sort of dived into Rethink You, but that's, that's the real short blog version of my life story. <laughs> Going back, just to rewind a little bit, the fact that you had two failed, thank goodness, suicide attempts. And then you created this own curriculum for yourself to dig yourself out of this depth of despair. How in the world, because when you're in a situation that you're dealing with suicide, you're obviously not in the best space or thinking, you know, mm -hmm. in your clearest, you're not seeing mm -hmm. what's happening. How in the world did you then gather any, you know, the broken pieces and put them back right. together and say, well, I, I'm still here and that's for a reason. And now I have a curriculum that I can put together for myself. That's just like such a, an unbelievable. Such a mind shift, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a combination, Stephanie. I can't take credit for it. A lot of it was divine inspiration. I, I really believe that God literally put me back together, but 
he revealed to me certain truths about who he was, about who I was. And that came through prayer and meditation and, and pastoral counseling. I was also seeing a therapist. And I think the therapist helped me recognize that my parents' divorce back when I was a teenager was a tremendous point of pain for me. And, and I had never dealt with it. And she was right. I had just kind of pushed it aside because that's what you did in those days. I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't recognize it as grief. I just thought, well, my whole life's just fallen apart. I guess it's got to get on with things. And I kind of just stifled the emotions, but I tried to soothe the emotions through various addictive behaviors, which is where addiction comes from. It's always trying to heal an internal pain. And those, you know, the, the smoking and the drinking and the wild living, et cetera, went on for like five or six years. And my life was a mess. And that's why between suicide attempt one and two, I didn't make much progress. But after that second attempt, there was something that shifted in me. And that's why I said that was the divine intervention. And I also felt pregnant as an unmarried mother, because, you know, the first thing they do is take you off all medications if you've been overdosing. But a pastor said to me, he said something to me that changed my life. And I don't know that he ever realized, I don't know where he is right now. But anyway, I reached out to him, I went to see him. And I remember sitting by the fireside in his office after worship that night. And he said the words that would change my life. He said, you tried to take your own life. And God gave you one in return. And he said, all you've ever needed is something to love. And he's given you something to love. I think it's time you figure out who you are and, you, and live the life that he's saved you to. And I never went back to the therapist, Stephanie, and I never to this day took another antidepressant, nor have I ever suffered from depression. So some of it was divine healing, but I took everything I knew as a trainer and, and as a a training designer and a leader development. And I thought, what are the things that are working well in my life? So what was interesting was that my career was always on this great solid track. I had phenomenal jobs, even though there were some times that I went to work, I hadn't been to bed the night before. I was probably still drunk. How I kept my job, I don't know. But I know this, I never stopped reading and learning. So because I had failed university at the beginning of my story, I have always been a, an ongoing learner. So I love to study and consume information, but it's information that's relevant to me. So I did a lot of reading. I, I took a lot of courses. I, I did a lot of things, both spiritually, emotionally. And that's why as a trainer, I started documenting what I was doing in a way. So the regroup process that I take people through now, because the rethink you process is three phase, re, regroup is saying, who am I? Where am I? You know, what has been my life story to this point? What, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What am I succeeding at? What is it that I really want to be doing? It's basically a reckoning. It's a self-reckoning, a self-reflection. You can't do anything in your life till you've done that regroup. Because that was my mistake the first time. It's like, all good now. I'm cool. Let me go back to work. Um, the second phase is reframe, and that's when I work with people on the deep mind work of uncovering. I actually, in my program, have an envelope exercise where I encourage people, they do a life journey, and then they highlight the, the good things and the strengths and the wins and the failures, and, the, and they highlight all the bad stuff, and they start storing it in a black envelope versus a green envelope, so that we go through the envelope exercise for several weeks, 
during which they journal and reflect, and then we reframe. Let go of the black stuff at a certain point, they, they burn it, and then they claim the green envelope. And by the time we get to refocus, we've now reframed and regrouped. Now they're ready to actually get their life on track to whatever they've figured out they really want to do that perhaps God's been preparing them for their whole lives. They just never saw it. And so I just replicated my own journey by putting that into my tools. So yeah, I've still the trainer in me continues to do courses and classes. That's who I am. I have a life mastery class that I teach last Saturday of every month. That's to give people life skills. And in March, I'm starting a management mastery program for managers and mid-level managers because many small companies can't afford a training department. So I want to replicate all those many years of management training and, and create experiences. But I digress. That was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> See what happens when I talk about things that I'm passionate about. Uh, you, we warned us of that at the beginning. You said, if we get talking on the subject, you're going to continue talking. I love hearing about your journey because it's one that most people probably haven't been on to the level that you have from the, the really low lows to now the highest highs doing exactly what makes you happy and makes your heart completely full. What is it about working with other people that gives you that same kind of feeling? How do you know when you're really tapping into what that person is trying to do? Oh, you know, I think, as I said, it's those light bulb moments, Stephanie. It's sort of finding what's that treasure in them and then nurturing it. Um, recently, somebody I coached said, you know, this has been the absolute life-changing experience. She said, I feel as if you gave my brain a drink of water long before I ever realized I was thirsty. And she said, I have embraced a part of myself that I have denied for more than 40 years. She was well into her late 50s. And she said, I've just ignored a part of me until you help me recognize it. So when people say that, I'm like, my job is done. Um, I was sitting in a meeting with a group of folks um, a couple of days ago, last week, I should say. And this woman was giving, I've sort of got the feeling, it was almost, you know what I wanted to say, Stephanie, and I don't want to use that, I want to say this quietly, because I haven't quite claimed this, but you know how you hear about dog whispers and horse whispers? I think I'm a people whisperer, because there's sometimes where I can see something in somebody, bad or good, and I kind of, I don't call them on it in a way that sort of puts them on a spot, but anyway, this woman had been spoken over several times in this meeting, and I became aware of it. And at some point, I stopped somebody who had sort of been overly talkative in this meeting. And it was also in a Zoom setting, but I had been watching her. And I said, I'd really like you to just hold that thought for a moment. I want to go back to Susie because she said something. And I felt that we kind of derailed what she was saying. And she just lit up again. It was like that flower that opened because I had seen her shutting down and shutting down the more people spoke over her, recognizing that everybody has equal value and passion in the world and just being able to bring that to the fore. That's what makes me happy. I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> I think that's an incredible talent to be able to be a people whisperer. I know that's why I said I haven't quite claimed that because that's pretty big, but that's the only way I can kind of explain it. I just see things. 
I just, I just can't believe the transformation that you've had and that some of these people that you work with have. I mean, to say the things that you've said, they say like giving their brain a drink of water before they realize that they were thirsty is a pretty incredible. Yeah. I yes. Mean, I remember another, another coaching client years ago, it was a software engineer and I love software engineers. They're smart people, but they are often introverts. They're not emotionally expressive. They spend their life, dealing with code god bless them and they have to be really good at what they do so they question everything so they can come across as argumentative they can also come across as smart ass excuse the, the french but that's how they come across but anyway i coached this guy and he learned how to repackage his smartness in a way that really engaged people and he said to me by the end of our time working together he said you know kim this has been liberating he said, I've always known these things about myself, but you've taught me the fact that I have the power to rewrite the script. I don't have to accept this narrative of my life anymore. And that's in a nutshell, Stephanie, really what I end up doing. It's giving people the power to take the narrative back. What do you do when people first come to you? Where do you start? And then what is their journey like? You know, is it Typically, are they slow to open up to you or are these people who are just like chomping at the bit to get things going? It can be all over the place. So, you know, when, when people coach with me, I have two options. You know, the one is just the self-service coaching online, which is the ThinkX program, which is powerful on its own. And then I have my online course, which is that three-step process. They, they can go through on their own as well. That's an e-learning but when, they, when somebody works with me one-on-one, -on -one, I work with them for six months and I bring both those journeys together in an integrated fashion. But for the first conversation, anyone who goes to my website, and in fact, they can go to either rethinkyou.com or kimlevings.com, but on either website, if they, they want to do the six-month exponential coaching program, you will notice there's no price. You can't buy it. All you can do is book, book time to talk with me. And the reason that is, is I do a two-hour connection conversation. And I do a two-hour conversation with somebody because I want to know their story. And I want them to be able to tell it in their words with as, with as less interruption as possible. No pressure. No, should I do this? Shouldn't I? No, just tell me your story. Because that's when I do that kind of people whispering. Because that's when I listen with that third ear and saying, what is it that's in their story that they can sense, but they haven't uncovered? And asking the right questions to get them unpacking it so that by the end of our time together, they realize, wow, this is what I need and this is what I want to do. And Kim is the person I want to work with. If I'm not the right coach, I'll be the first one to tell them. So, you know, I don't think what I'm going to do is going to be helpful to you. I'm going to refer you to someone else. What makes someone a great fit? Well, as I said earlier, somebody who's talented and ambitious and somebody who's already achieved success in their life and somebody who is committed to their personal development, you'll be amazed at how many people are not committed to personal development. It's hard work. And in fact, the, um, the life skills program I'm teaching at the end of March, end of February, I'm doing the Saturday. In fact, I'm doing a master your mindset class and end of March, I'm teaching Master Your Habits. And it's the five habits that are essential to achieve an exponential life. And I address the fact that being lazy 
And choosing the path of no resistance is what 90% of the population do. It's just, it's too much hard work. So I don't want to work with somebody who I can see desperately needs to do some changing and some fixing, but they are not committed. It's just going to bring me more frustration and, and anger than anything else, not helpful. So I'll only work with somebody that I know is committed and they want it bad enough that they truly are tired of being on the treadmill that they're on, that something in life is, there's some part of them that's just not fulfilled, that they feel that there's something more. That's the kind of individual I want to work with. How do you, how would you tell people to get to the point that they're able to make that change? Because I think sometimes it's not even that they're not willing, it's that it's too scary. Too you know, scary. Yes. Zone and yes. like, oh, this is working. Do I really like, yeah, that would be better. And I'd love that. And then it'd be great if it worked, but it might not. And this is working and I have a family and how do you get them to get past that? Well, you know, I always quote Dr. Morris Shekman. He wrote the book, Fifth Wave Leadership. I met Mari once when he was giving a lunchtime presentation in California. And I loved what he said. He said, we talk about our comfort zone, but often our comfort zones are not very comfortable. We should call them the familiar. The familiar sometimes is not very pretty, but it's the familiar. And sometimes our comfort with the familiar will hold us back from the self-growth and challenge of becoming something better. And that's why only 1% of the population ever go on to achieve great success because they are willing to do the work and they're willing to sacrifice because it's worth it to them. So helping somebody shift that for a lot of the time, it's just figuring out what is next and how badly do you want it? Because fear is nothing. Fear is just an illusion. Fear is an excuse. And I can't, I can't remember who said this. It's not my quote, but it's another powerful quote that says, both fear and faith require that we believe in something that doesn't exist. It's your choice as to which path you take. So in my life, I have chosen the, the path of faith. But in mo there have been times in my life where I've chosen the path of fear. And inevitably, when I took the path of least resistance, I ended up in a dead end. And it's like, I'm back in this dead end again. Let me, how do I get back out of it? I don't want dead ends in my life anymore. So now I'm choosing to face challenges and do the work of saying, I know that I can do better and be better and live the life that I truly want to live. And that's what I'm pursuing. So that's how I help people make that shift, Stephanie. We say fear, fear is nothing but a big, blob of black smoke of figments of imagination. We fear things that haven't happened. We fear things that don't exist. And we make mountains out of molehills. And most, most things that we're afraid of are, are not, nothing to be afraid of. We're afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of the challenge of pushing through those barriers. I love this. I loved our conversation. So many great conversations points that came up in this conversation. We'll definitely be sharing the links to your website so that people can get in touch with you and so that you can help them live a life yes. without mediocrity. <laughs> yes, without mediocrity. I want to rescue people from a life of mediocrity because life is so much more than that. So well, thank, you, thank so you, Stephanie. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for watching. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.